0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is Monday, uh, December the 18th, 2023, although it's already the 19th in Singapore where we are talking to our guest. Uh, yesterday, an interesting show with Mark Minovich, a, a US based technologist and investor on AI. He's bullish on AI as a new book out called our planet powered by AI. But one of the things that I was I have to admit, rather troubled by in our conversation was he suggested, well, it's all very well for progressive countries like the United States, the United Kingdom and France and Germany to have AI, but he was much less Uh, confident about the Chinese having AI and suggested that we in the West I don't know what we really means need to keep AI out of Chinese hands I found that rather troubling I have to admit and of course we've had over the years many critics of China on the show uh, hard cold warriors like Isaac Stonefish Uh, Others who have focused on the surveillance state, uh, the Wall Street Journal reporters, Josh Chin and Lisa Lin, even relative liberals like Orville Schell, um, who was on the show last year, uh, have become increasingly sceptical and critical of Xi Jinping. Um, But of course, there are other ways of thinking, not just about China, but particularly more broadly about Asia. Uh, Kishore Mabubani, a uh, Singapore-based writer, analyst, academic, has been on the show many times before. Back in 2021, um, he, uh, he was on the show defending China and suggesting that China, uh, that American paranoia about China actually reflected American insecurity. He was also on the show last year talking about the catastrophic response to the COVID crisis in the United States. And Keyshaw, who is a prolific writer, had a particularly interesting piece in the Financial Times this week um, entitled, It's Time for the West and the Rest to Start to Talk to Each Other as Equals. Keyshaw's latest book, uh, The Asian 21st Century, has been downloaded, I think, in about 16 or 20 countries, more than 3.4 million times. So he has a considerable audience. And I'm thrilled that he's joining us from his. Uh, office home in Singapore. Uh, Keisha, what do you make of people like Minovic, the idea that somehow the Chinese shouldn't be allowed to have AI?
1: Well, let me be blunt. He's racist. Uh, And I think in the West especially, as you know, there's a deep fear of the yellow peril. Now, I know it's politically incorrect to speak about the yellow peril, but I discuss it in my book, Has China Won? And it's important to understand that this fear of the yellow peril has lain buried in the Western imagination for over 800 years since the Mongols almost conquered Europe. And it surfaces from time to time. In in, in Western literature, in Fu Manchu, it surfaced most openly when the US Congress passed an act called the Chinese Racial Exclusion Act around the 1890s. So, I mean, that prejudice uh, against the Chinese or the yellow people is part of the Western mind. And I think this is the time for the West to engage in deep reflection on whether or not these ancient prejudices should guide policies towards contemporary China. Because in many global public policies, like, for example, on climate change, China has in many ways been more responsible than many of the Western countries. And this is something for which China never gets thanked for. And I can I can, I can, I can prove my points on climate change too. So I think when people like I think, uh, Minovich speak out like that, I think they reflect a deep racist prejudice that has to be confronted head on
0: uh i want to talk about the liberal critique too but before we get there um does china kishore offer an alternative version to the democratic western model some people see it as a, an enlightened despotism a centralized authoritarianism uh which seems at least around the world to be in some ways more attractive than the chaotic and often corrupt versions of western democracy. Uh, Is there a China alternative as a model for development in the 21st century?
1: China does not offer (laughs) an alternative model. And China does not want to offer an alternative model to the Western democratic route. And I think there's no doubt that the majority of the world uh, will choose the uh, Western democratic route. And then frankly, that's not a problem uh, for China. Because China's view is that each country should be allowed to choose its own system on the basis of its own history, tradition, culture. And therefore the Chinese obviously have worked out a system that has worked well for them because from the point of view of the Chinese people, the 1, 1. 1.4 billion people, Chinese, uh, uh, people live in China, the past 40 years of development have been the best 40 years in 4,000 years of Chinese history. So they, the Chinese people, as you as you know, even from a Harvard Kennedy School study, which I've cited, are happy with the performance of the Chinese Communist Party in terms of how their lives have improved. So, But the Chinese do not say that their system is superior or better. And they're quite happy that the United States of America has chosen its democratic model. And it works for the United States. And United States should persist uh, with it. And at the end of the day, I must also emphasize a key point that Asia is much, much larger uh, than China. Okay. There are four and a half billion people in Asia. Only 1.4 billion people live in China. Uh, Asia also has the, out of the three largest democracies in the world, India, United States and Indonesia. Uh, two of the three are in Asia. So India, was, Asia also has the world's largest democracy. So the Asian story is not a simple black and white story. And the larger Asian story, which I tell in my book, Asian 21st Century, is one of a remarkable diversity, which I think many Americans and many in the West are not aware of.
0: Yeah, I want to get onto to that story. But before we get there, Um, Is there a legitimate critique in the West, especially from liberals of Xi Jinping? Uh, Orville Mm. Scholl was on the show recently. I'm sure you're very familiar with his work. I'm sure you know him as well, a a Berkeley-based lifetime Chinese analyst who seems very disappointed with Xi Jinping. Is that a credible position or or is that maybe he's not a racist, Mm. but is there a degree of... uh, Patronizing quality
1: to this critique. Well, I mean, I, you're right. I do know Orville Schell, and I, I, I like him as a human being. I respect him uh, as a human being. But I think when you describe someone like Orville Schell as a liberal, uh, I can say that as a someone who was a student of philosophy for many years in my undergraduate and postgraduate years. Uh the one of the key things about being liberal is the ha, to have the capacity of mind to understand that there are various alternative uh paths to success in human development. And I think in this sense, uh I would not call Orville Schell liberal in this vision of the larger world because his mind is very much trapped in the view, in the what I call the Francis Fukuyama view. That there is only a one road in history, and in that one road in history, we all societies in the world are supposed to become carbon copies of the Western liberal democratic societies. And China, of course, is uh, disproving that. And and as I and as I said earlier, it's perfectly okay for countries around the world to choose their own system. Singapore, for example, uh, has elections uh, every five years. So we've chosen our own route, but but we must the real liberal of the 21st century will be someone who begins to understand that there's extraordinary diversity uh, in the human community and one statistic that every western liberal should know Im- should know by heart is that only 12% uh, of the world's population lives in the west 88% of the world's population lives outside the West. And this 88% will be quite passive over the last 200 years have suddenly stopped being passive. And I can guarantee you that, that this 88% do not have the dream of become carbon copies of Western civilization. And that, that is, in a sense, the foundation of obvious shells thinking. And I think that's dangerous because then you, then you don't understand the world on its own terms you try to understand the world only through the lenses of one civilization, Western civilization.
0: We're speaking with Kishore Mabubani, one of uh, the most interesting writers, thinkers, uh, globalists, I guess, coming out of uh, Asia. Uh, his newest book is the latest book, The Asian 21st Century, been downloaded almost three and a half million times. Kishore, you noted earlier that... Um, the Asian century isn't just the Chinese century. How would you generalize then about this this thing you call the Asian century? Is it just a geographical phenomenon? Is it a cultural one? Oh, it's deeply,
1: deeply cultural <laughs> you know you it's one again another important fact that every Westerner should know. Is that from the year one to the year 1820? The two largest economies of the world were always those of China and India. And you know, Western Europe and North America only took off uh, in the last 200 years. So the past 200 years of Western domination of world history have been a major historical aberration. And the reason why the 21st century will be the Asian century, as I document in my book, is that we are returning to a larger 2,000-year-old norm. And even this very basic idea that 200 years of Western domination of world history has been an aberration is something that no Western mind either accepts, uh, comprehends, or understands in any deep fashion. So... Asian societies have a very rich history, and what you're seeing is the natural bounce back of many Asian societies. And by the way, just two weeks two weeks ago, uh, I was in India. And if you want to go to the most optimistic place on planet Earth, don't go to Europe because everybody there is full of doom and gloom, and they say don't even go to the United States because I mean, if you have to worry about Trump coming back, you can't possibly be happy. And so, therefore. The, 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 one place, the, the one place in the world that is the most optimistic today are the many Asian societies. Go to India, go to Indonesia. And, and if, if, if people on this program want a shorthand way of remembering what the Asian story is about, uh, think of it uh, the, as the new CIA story. And CIA doesn't stand for Central Intelligence Agency. It stands for China India, and ASEAN. ASEAN are the 10 countries uh, of Southeast Asia. And uh, one statistic you should know uh, (laughs) is that in the year 2000, among the uh, 3.5 billion people, uh, almost 40% of the world's population, who live in uh, uh, China, India, and ASEAN, there were only 150 million people living in middle class populations in the year 2000. But by 2020, that number had exploded from 150 million to 1.5 billion people. And by 2030, it could be anywhere from 2.5 to 3 billion people. Now, that's the largest explosion of middle class populations ever seen in, in human history. And therefore, this explosion is not just taking place in China, it's taking place in China, in China, in India, and in the ASEAN countries, and in many other parts of Asia too. So it, clearly, the Asian story is the biggest story of the twenty-first century. But where does Asia begin and end?
0: I mean, you haven't even mentioned Japan, um, <laughs> Iran, uh, the Gulf. What, well, what, guys, um, uh, you know, and my question earlier was on ge- geography. What? I mean, okay. Well, these these economies or cultures are, are optimistic. They're all rising. But does anything else tie them together, unite them?
1: Well, uh, you know, uh, I once said that maybe the easiest way to conceive of Asia is to think of it from Tehran to Tokyo. Uh, it's easy to remember. But let me let me let me tell you also, when you you know, most people think that uh, that Asians live in separate compartments and uh, there's no such thing as any kind of uh, Asian identity. Let me tell you a simple personal story. Now, I I was born as a Hindu Sindhi. Sindh, as you know, is now part of uh, Pakistan. And my family left Pakistan because they were Hindus in partition 1947. And so they came to uh, Singapore. So as a Hindu, I have, as you know, personal uh, connections with uh, over a billion Hindus in India. But at the same time, out of the ten Southeast Asian countries where I am, nine of them have an Indic base. They all have studied the Mahabharata and Ramayana too. And if 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 you that's 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 going east from India. But if you go west from India, from where my origins are, when I go to uh, Tehran or to the Arab world, they see my name and they recognize it because Mabu Bani, my name comes from an Arabic or a Persian word, which is Mabu, which means beloved. right? And the script that I used to write in uh, as a child for Sindhi is the Arabic script. So here am I, a Hindu Sindhi, with connections to the uh, Islamic world. And equally importantly, when I go to places as far away as Tokyo or Seoul or, or Beijing, What do I find? I find Buddhist temples everywhere. And when I was young as a Hindu, my mother would take me to pray in Buddhist temples because Buddhism also came from India. So, you know, there are connections within Asia that go back centuries that many in the West are unaware of, absolutely unaware of. And this is where every, every, every child living in the West should at least have a get a basic understanding of Asian history if they're going to prepare themselves for the Asian 21st century.
0: Uh, Kishore, you're not the first or the last person to, to write about the Asian 21st century. Our mutual friend, Parag Khanna, who's been on the show many times, he also wrote a book about it. What do you suggest about, quote-unquote, this Asian 21st century that hasn't been said before? Where's the originality in your observations?
1: Well, the originality comes from the fact that there is deep resistance in the Western mind to accepting the fact that the West no longer represents the most successful, single most successful civilization. It now has to share space with other successful civilizations. So we're moving from a mono-civilizational world to a multi-civilizational world. We are moving from a unipolar world to a multipolar world, and we are moving to a world of great diversity. And, and it's a, such a tragedy that the Western mind, which as we discussed in the case of Oville Shell, uh, which prides itself on being liberal is actually not liberal in terms of trying to understand other societies and cultures and how they are trying uh, to develop. And, And so it's very, very important. When you're asking what's the originality of the idea, the originality of the idea, to put it in a simple punchline, is that the Western liberal mind is now becoming illiberal at the time when it should become more liberal.
0: I don't want to turn this into a conversation about Orville Shell, I brought him up, but uh, I personally, uh, I'm not convinced by your argument on him. I mean, what makes your observations about the United States, which are in some ways as equally critical of 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 of, of the US as Shelley's is of China, what makes your observations, looking at the US from Singapore, from East Asia, what makes your observations more legitimate, more accurate, more credible than Shell's observations about China?
1: Um, Well, I think, by the way, uh, I want to emphasize that uh, most of the countries in uh, East Asia are friends of the United States. Uh, We want the United States to succeed and do well. We don't want to see the United States uh, falter and fail because the United States has been a good friend uh, of many countries in East Asia. But of course, we are deeply troubled uh, by how, you know, self-absorbed the United States uh, has become uh, in, 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 in terms of uh, focusing on its domestic problems. I think in the year 2024, uh, most Americans will switch off of the world and have to deal with the specter of Trump uh, coming back possibly in November 2024. So that's bad for the world when the United States becomes so self-absorbed. Now, if you want if you want me to explain, and as I said, I I, I know Ovil Shell and I respect him uh, as a human being. Uh, I want to emphasize that his view of China is one that is not shared by most Asians. Most Asians believe that China will be China. And therefore, we will have to learn to live, we have to learn to live with the United States, which is a very successful society still in every sense of the term. And, I mean, but we have to learn to live with America as America chooses to be what it wants to be. And we want to have to live with China as China chooses to be what it wants to be. And I think people like uh, Orville Shell, uh, I don't want to mention too often, but they, they believe that they can change and transform China and create a different China. And I think that's, that will be a great delusion. Uh, at the end of the day, the Chinese people will decide where China is going, and we we have to accept what the Chinese people uh, decide. And you know that there, there, there were times in history when the West could go out and try and remake other societies. But as you can see, even in this century, you look at what the United States tried to do in terms of producing a democracy in Iraq. You got a disaster, right? And at the end of the day, the, the West has got to understand that all societies around the world will choose their own forms of government. And you know, and, and, and at the end of the day, they have to live with the consequences uh, of the choices that they make. And, and the main reason why I wrote uh, the article that I did in the Financial Times uh, about the West uh, and the rest is that the, the, the rest is beginning to get tired of Western preaching, uh, Western condescension, uh, Western uh, advice, and they're saying, please, take care of your own house first. And after you've done that, let's have a conversation.
0: Well, I hope that conversation is beginning now with Kishore Mabubani, very controversial, articulate, and in some ways, I think, quite convincing. uh, Political analyst based in Singapore, the author of the Asian 21st Century and of a fascinating piece recently in the financial times i want to thank liberties a quarterly journal of culture and politics for bringing us this very high quality content and and, and contributors to the keenan show we're going to run a, a short feature about liberties and then i want to come back with kishore mabubani and talk about what the conversation he's arguing in favor of in the ft what it needs to be made up of so don't go away anyone And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Kishore Mabubani, the author of an important, very influential new book, The Asian 21st Century, as well as a fascinating piece in this week's FT. It's time for the West and the rest to talk to each other as equals. Do you think, Kishore, one of the reasons why international organizations now seem so ineffective is because of the absence of this conversation that many of today's international organizations are or really just
1: fronts for Western interests? Well, I think uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I did write another book called The Great Convergence on Global Governance. And it's all about why the United Nations and its family of institutions are weak rather than strong. And and, and, and the evidence is very clear, uh, Andrew, that the uh, an organization like the United, States, United Nations is weak uh, by design, uh, that, that even at the height of the Cold War, when the United States and Soviet Union disagreed on everything, the only thing they agreed on is that you have to keep the United Nations weak because the United Nations constrains uh, great powers. In fact, a former national security advisor of the United States told me very candidly, Kishore, he said, I can understand why a small state like Singapore likes multilateral institutions, because the multilateral institutions enhance the ability of. Who was that? Um, he, I'm trying to remember his uh, uh, name, but he told me that confidentially. Anyway, uh, I cite him in in you know, the book, The Great Convergence. The, uh, but in the case of uh, United States, he said to me. That the United States feels constrained by the uh, United Nations, and therefore is natural for the United States to want to see a weaker United Nations. But I want to mention here very quickly, Andrew, that uh, Bill Clinton, former President Bill Clinton, gave a wonderful speech in Yale in the year 2003, where he said that if the United States is going to be number one forever, then fine, United States can keep on doing whatever it's doing. But Bill Clinton added, ah very important, but he said, but if you can conceive of a world where the United States is no longer the dominant political, military, economic superpower, then surely it is in United States national interests to strengthen multilateral institutions, processes, uh, norms. So clearly it is now in the interest of the United States to switch from a policy of weakening multilateral institutions to a policy of strengthening multilateral institutions which by the way in the long run could then constrain the next number one which will be china so you know th- this is this is where there, there isn't very deep thinking in the united states of how the united states should adapt to a different world and i thought bill clinton was giving his fellow americans very good advice uh, 20 years ago unfortunately nobody took up his advice and even sadly, even Bill Clinton hasn't repeated it since he gave that one speech in Yale. How do we
0: begin talking to one another then? it's uh, The title of your book is, uh, the, the piece is, it's time for the West and the rest to talk to each other as equals. Is the ball in the Western court? Is the problem the patronizing quality of the West? Or do things need to change
1: in, in Asia as well? Well, you know, I, as you know, Andrew, I was a diplomat for 33 years. Uh, and I spent 10 years as the uh, Singapore's ambassador to United Nations. And it is a fact uh, that many of the Western countries uh, have got used to the habit of lecturing uh, other countries with condescension, and in fact, were very bad listeners at, at the uh, of the idea that these other societies do not want to become carbon copies uh, of Western society. So. I do believe, but you know, like for example, in the dialogue that you and I are having now, where, you know, as you said, and I'm glad you said it, that your, your point of view is different, my point of view is different, but we can talk to each other. And that's this is what I'm advocating, is for the world to have conversations like the one you and I are having uh, today, where you express your point of view and I express my point of view we listen to each other in mutual respect and we don't dismiss each other's arguments from beginning and say, you have nothing to say because you don't conform to the Western liberal democratic idea of what a good society, uh, uh, is all about. And, and I think basically uh, there is fortunately a place where you can go and have that dialogue. And that's frankly where you have the, uh, we do have a global village council and that's the United Nations. And, you know, in many ways, if you if you if you watch carefully what countries say in the united nations you get a sense of what the world is thinking so for example when 153 countries uh, as you know uh, last week voted in favor of a ceasefire uh, in gaza you can, now you know what the world thinks 153 countries by the way including uh, many western countries voted in favor of a ceasefire so clearly uh, if you want to know what the world is thinking, do try to listen to what what is being said in the United Nations. Keisha, when
0: historians look back at 2023, do you think that they will be struck by the significance of both the war in Ukraine and the Israeli invasion of, of Gaza? Uh, do they do they speak of Western and particularly U.S. decline?
1: I think, I mean, certainly the wars in Ukraine and Gaza are tragic. Uh, I also believe that uh, both wars could have been avoided. I think, for example, uh, Ukraine could have been avoided if the United States and the West had listened to the advice of George Kennan. As you know, there's a very famous quote that George Kennan gave to Tom Friedman in the New York Times where he said, we will keep expanding NATO and the Russians will react angrily And then then you will say there go the russians you know they are always doing terrible things but as as george cannon said you provoke the russians i mean this i'm not me that's not me saying it that's george cannon and even henry kissinger in a 2014 article in the washington post proposed a compromise formula for ukraine ukraine could be independent ukraine could join the european union but not join nato so there were various compromise formulas uh, that could have prevented the war in Ukraine, and similarly, I believe could also prevent could have prevented the war in Gaza. by the end of the day, to answer your bigger question, human the world history in the 21st century will not be moved by what is happening in Ukraine. It'll not be moved by what is happening in Gaza. It'll be it will be moved by what's happening in Asia, because you know when when. Uh, almost half of humanity, actually more than half of humanity, suddenly wakes up and begins to perform uh, incredibly well, the weight of the centre of gravity of the world's economy uh, is shifting uh, to Asia. Now, let me give you a simple point. In the year 1960, uh, if you look at the top five economies in the world, they were United States, Soviet Union, Germany, France, UK. Not a single Asian uh, was in the list uh, in uh, in the year 1960. Uh, look at now, now on the list of top five, three are Asian. So in the top five, you have United States, China, uh, Japan, uh, and I think Germany and India. So, you know, three out of the top five are now Asian. Look at the big difference, 1960, not a single Asian country uh, had the, uh, in the top five economies, and today you have three out of the five in the top Asian in, a, in a, uh, three of the top five are Asian in the world. So that's and that these are the more fundamental, profound changes taking place in the human landscape that we should be paying attention to, and not be distracted by all these uh, side conflicts uh, like Ukraine. And and, and 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 you know, in in my book, has China won? I I begin the book by quoting what Henry Kissinger said to me in a one-on-one conversation. He says, the fundamental problem with the United States, this is Henry Kissinger saying this, that United States doesn't have a comprehensive long-term strategy for managing the return of China. And I see as a friend of the United States, and in my book, has Your return of Taiwan, you mean? Well, no, 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 no. The return of China
0: as a world power, you mean? The
1: return of uh, China as a world power. And and, and I believe there's a better way of managing the return of China. In a way, by the way, that leads to a win-win result for, not just for China and the United States, but for our whole world. Remember, at the end of the day, one big subject that you and I haven't discussed, Andrew, is that we live in a small, imperiled planet. And that's that's the fundamental human reality today. And if indeed human beings represented the most intelligent species on planet Earth, all of us of humanity should come together and focus on saving planet Earth, rather than focusing on our various bilateral differences and divisions. And this is exactly the wrong time uh, for the United States and China to have a major geopolitical contest at a time when planet Earth is burning. So, you no, know, there are more intelligent ways of managing the big issues of our time than the ones that are being adopted in the West. And that's what I try to do with my writings.
0: Yeah, we, we probably need to do a, another show on that. It's, it's a very big and important subject, and we've covered it in lots of different ways. Um, if the 21st century Keyshaw is gonna be it probably, I I think you you make a compelling argument, the Asian century, then certainly the 18th and 19th centuries were the European centuries. And of course, Europe destroyed itself through one kind of civil war or another, World War One and Two are both European civil wars. How fearful are you about the Asian 21st century being one where there may be a war between India and China or other regional wars? Um, it, 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 are you concerned with... Uh, Leaving aside, obviously, the the Taiwan issue and a a more globalized war in in Asia, are you concerned with warfare in Asia?
1: Well, I'm very, very concerned. And uh, that's why, by the way, one of the things I have done uh, since I retired from full-time employment is to launch something called the Asian Peace Program, and the name says it all. Uh, There are many fault lines in Asia. You mentioned the one within China and India. I worry about that. There's one between uh, China and Japan. There's one within India uh, and Pakistan. And now there's a new one brewing within China and the Philippines. So there are many fault lines in Asia that we should be mindful of. Because if there's one thing that will stop the Asian century from happening... It's wars between major uh, Asian countries. So, uh, And all Asians who want to see the Asian society succeed have to focus on what needs to be done to prevent wars uh, between the uh, major powers because nothing nothing in history, as you know, is determined. Uh, Everything requires uh, human effort. And if you make mistakes, you pay the consequences. You are right. I mean, Europe basically would have continued dominating the world uh, for most of the 20th century, if there hadn't been two disastrous uh, World War I and World War II uh, in Europe, which severely uh, weakened uh, Europe as a, as a consequence. So uh, I was hoping that wars would become a sunset industry uh, in the 21st century. Unfortunately, my hope hasn't come true. And as, as a result of that, in 2022, you had a surprise war in Ukraine. In 2023, you had a surprise war in Gaza. So we've got to prepare ourselves for the next surprise war and do something about it. Finally,
0: Kishore, I, I can't resist asking you about Henry Kissinger. You noted that you're quite sympathetic. You, you knew the man. Um, we're doing a show actually later this week with Charles Kupchan, um, uh, a Washington DC-based foreign policy analyst. Who just I, died, I know Charles. Who had an op-ed in the in the New York Times, which suggests that we need to remember Kissinger who just died at a hundred, uh, last month, um, more sympathetically, I'm in a way, given, given Kissinger's involvement in the, the Vietnam war is what some people see his moral responsibility for the bombing of Cambodia and a Vietnam in, in some ways, I'm rather surprised with your more sympathetic take on him.
1: Mm.
0: What, what's well, your, <laughs> what's your overall view of Kissinger?
1: Well, the uh, you know, by the way, uh, a group of friends of Henry Kissinger are coming out with a book very soon uh, to discuss his contributions to the world. And in my essay, I'm contributing an essay to that volume. I speak about Henry Kissinger's positive contributions to Southeast Asia. Now, this must come as a huge surprise to, to people who believe that he was only responsible for evil things in uh, Cambodia and Vietnam, but it is also a fact, you know. Now that time, now that time has passed, uh, it's clear that in many ways, uh, by by the United States by taking a stand in Southeast Asia, did give time for the non-communist countries in Southeast Asia to succeed uh, and to develop, and that's how ASEAN uh, has succeeded and become the second most successful regional organization in the world. And, and, and the most important thing you should need to know when you keep talking about Vietnam, you know, when the when uh, Viet, when uh, South Vietnam collapsed, the non, non-communist countries were supposed to become dominoes and Vietnam was supposed to dominate Southeast Asia. Instead, as you know, the opposite happened. And what do I mean the opposite happened? Vietnam, communist Vietnam, decided to join uh, the ASEAN countries that had been formed by the non-communist countries of Southeast Asia. Now that, at the end of the day, showed that the vision of trying to create a peaceful Southeast Asia, which I think was, in a sense, uh, the goal of United States policies uh, in the region, ultimately succeeded. Uh, and of course, this the, the, I, what I'm giving you is, a, unfortunately, a quick, crude summary of a very complex story. But at the end of the day, The reason why there's so many reservoirs of goodwill towards United States in Southeast Asia is that many Southeast Asians recognize that uh, American policies have helped Southeast Asia enormously. And by the way, just for your information, uh, one of Henry Kissinger's best friends was the founding prime minister of Singapore, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew. And and they both shared uh, many common visions in the world of the world. And by the way, including how to manage the rise of China also. So the, Kissinger uh, is a man who is complex. I met him several times. And at the end of the day, if 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 America could produce more Henry Kissingers with the same complexity of mind, then and then America would have developed better policies to the world than it has developed today. Kishore, finally, uh, Henry Kissinger's last published book was
0: The AI Age. He wrote it with uh, Eric Schmidt, the former executive chairman of, uh, of Google. Uh, we're asking all our guests this in conclusion, and we began on AI, so let's end with it. What global problem, perhaps in the context of what we're talking about today, can AI help us fix? Can Can AI be useful in, in, in creating a genuine conversation, a less patronizing one, get Europe and the United States beyond its three or four centuries of colonialism and be able to talk more equally with, with, with Asia? Well,
1: uh, I, I'm a great fan uh, of AI. I have a very positive view of AI. I'm not sure what it can do uh, in terms of promoting uh, intercivilizational civilizational uh, dialogue. But once or twice, when I ask AI uh, questions like how to pre- how to create peace in Asia, it gave very good answers. Do the same, just just go to AI and chat. What what can we do to bring peace in Asia? You get very good answers. But on on, on the personal front, um, Andrew, you know, I turned seventy five uh, two months ago. And you know, at the age of 75, I find myself taking all kinds of medicines from my heart, for my lungs, for my knees, uh, for my ears. So I, 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 I'm what one. My dream for AI is that AI, I could just download onto AI all the medicines I take in one day and say, please tell me, are these medicines actually helping me, or are they contradicting each other and leaving my body completely confused? And I also hope that AI can also tell me which Chinese medicines, which Indian medicines, which still have not been used in the West, can now be integrated with Western medicines to create a better life for all of us. So I see great hope for AI and I'm not an enemy or someone who's fearful of AI in this world.